Let's pray. Father, as we uh, open up your word, we want to thank you, first of all, for it. That, uh, Lord, that you would love us enough to want to reveal yourself to us, to want to show us who you are, to reveal your heart to us, your character, your goodness, your mercy, your grace. In fact, all of the divine characteristics are revealed to us through your word. We want to thank you most of all for the fact that you have been revealed most fully to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That through him we can know you and be known by you, to have a relationship with you. And we pray this morning that as we open up your word, as we hear it proclaimed, as we ponder it in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would help us in that, that he would indeed be our teacher, that today as we hear about the kind of people we're called to be, that, Lord, you would help us to be those people, that we might bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and glory to you, the Father. For we ask it for this purpose. Amen. We continue on in our series in, uh, in Deuteronomy, this uh, series we've entitled Choose Life. And today we're going to be focusing on this particular passage and I've entitled it The Worshipping Heart from Deuteronomy 10. Some of you might be aware, but uh, last week in uh, Washington, D.C., there were tens of thousands of, of Christians that came from all parts of the United States and gathered in the National Mall there in, in Washington for a day of worship and a, and a day of prayer. That's a picture of there. It's that, uh, that same place where um, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech back there in the, uh, in the 60s. The central message of this particular gathering, it was called Together 2016, was this focus of, of reset. And uh, the term relates, if you like, to, uh, to technology. I don't know if you've got one of these smartphones or computer or that sort of thing. And every now and again, they just go on the fritz, don't they? They just don't work the way that you would want them to work. You know, they sort of just have problems with, uh, you know, with programs loading and things like that. And so you've actually got to go back and you've actually got to either reboot it or you've got to reset it so that it goes back to, to working properly. And this is uh, kind of like the, 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 the kind of uh, focus that this particular gathering had here in Washington. And I wanted to basically come before God and, uh, and, and recognise that sometimes we get out of whack in our relationship with him. That in fact we are born out of whack in our relationship with God. That we don't function as we, as we should. We're corrupted in our very natures. And we ourselves need to have this spiritual resetting, if you like, that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But of course, as we journey on as Christians, we, we also recognise that, that we also, from time to time, get to that stage where we know that we've just gone off of, of the path that God would have us walk and, he, he, and, and we need to get back to basics again. We need to have this kind of spiritual resetting, if you like, in our lives. The, uh, the hashtag that, uh, that, that was uh, very much a part of um, this particular gathering was Jesus changes everything. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Twitter, I don't use Twitter, but, uh, but the hashtag Jesus changes everything was apparently the third highest rated tweet from, on that particular uh, weekend, apparently right across, right across America. And it just points to the fact that indeed Jesus is the one who does change everything in our lives, who is able to bring this spiritual reset, if you like, this spiritual rebooting in our lives. 
And in many ways, this whole aspect of having this spiritual reset is the focus of our passage today in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through to 22. But there on the plains of Moab, the, you know, Moses had the, uh, the people of, of God there gathered and he was giving them his final words because he knew that he wasn't going to be entering into the, uh, the promised land with them. He stands there, he gives these last few sermons to the people, reminding them of who they are and, and of what God has done for them on their behalf and urging them and, and exhorting them to, uh, to follow God and to, uh, to love him wholeheartedly. And, uh, and as, he, uh, as we see in this passage this morning, the key verse, if you like, is in this passage is verse 16, where we read, Moses tells the people, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Moses is calling for the heart, the people's hearts, if you like, to be reset from a, a disposition of stubbornness and rebellion of God to one of sensitivity and softness to the ways of God and to the, and to the person of God and our relationship with him. Circumcision, of course, was a, was a covenant sign given by God to Abraham. We read about that in, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 to 14. And what it did is it simply pointed to that person actually being set apart as God's person, a member of God's covenant people. Much, much like a baptism for us today. You know, when a person becomes baptized, they do so recognizing that, you know, they are giving a public declaration to a spiritual truth that has already taken place in their hearts. And that they are declaring before the people that they are indeed are a person who belongs to God, set apart for Him and His purposes. So circumcision was a physical marker reminded of the people of who they belonged to. And although restricted in its practice only to males, it's evident that both male and female alike were considered to be members of the covenant community. The women most likely through that familial relationship that they had with the male head of the household. Here in Deuteronomy 10, this circumcision takes on a deeper and more spiritual emphasis. It's called God's people are called to have their hearts circumcised. A demand that, uh, that, that, that called them to recognize that, that in addition to bearing the, the physical mark of circumcision, the physical mark of covenant membership, that they were also under obligation themselves to display certain and specific spiritual qualities of commitment and obedience to the Lord's will. For it is this that should be the determining characteristic, the determining sort of aspect, if you like, of the heart that truly does belong to God. A heart that, that, that belongs to him completely, devotedly, wholeheartedly. And that these char- this, this characteristic of our heart then is, is actually displayed then through certain um, attitudes and actions in our lives. And those attitudes and actions are laid out for us here in this passage. So we're going to have a look at these this morning under three headings. I've given you some, uh, some notes again this morning so you can follow along with me on the, uh, the PowerPoint behind there. I've tried to highlight the, uh, the underlying words so that they're the, the words that are missing in your, uh, in your notes. We're going to look at it under three headings. We're dealing with the, dealing with the worshipping heart. The who of the worshipping heart, the why of the worshipping heart, and the what of the worshipping heart. 
So let's begin with the who. Moses begins with the words here in our passage in verse 12, and he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? The Lord your God. Moses here is emphasizing the fact that the the, the Lord is indeed their God, the God of the people of Israel. In fact, that word Lord is in capitals. You might notice that in your uh, in your Bibles. And that record, that uh, points to the fact that it's referring to God's name, his revealed name to his people, that name of Yahweh. And it reflects that intimate revealing nature, if you like, of God to his people. He was their God. He revealed himself and he was he had called them to be his people dedicated and set apart to him. He'd given them the Ten Commandments, the first two of which made it clear that he was indeed their God and that he was the only God, that there is no God but him and the people were to worship him and him alone. In verse 14, Moses declares that everything is subject to God, that all things in heaven and on earth belong to him. That in fact, God is the one who rules over all. The God of the Israelite people, the God of the Hebrew people was the God who was the only God, the one true God, the God who was sovereign over all things, who ruled over all things. And everything and everyone owed its existence to this very God. How incredible that the people of Israel could then say that this God, the God who is sovereign over all, is indeed our God. And we belong to him and he has called us into this relationship with himself. How special. And verse 17 goes on to say, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no pride. Takes no bribe. You can sort of see here that, that, that Moses is sort of trying to, he's searching for these superlatives, if you like, about God. And his vocabulary is just failing him. No one comes close to God, for he is more glorious, more powerful. He's more majestic, more magnificent, more holy, more righteous, more wise, more faithful, more just, more trustworthy than anyone. He is absolutely perfect and absolutely supreme or superior than anyone or anything. It just reminds me this morning of Jeanette's words to us as she herself declared the praises of God and and pointed to how good he is. It's the same kind of thing that Moses is, is doing here in this passage, just trying to reach for these superlatives of God that he is far greater than whatever we can imagine. Of course, we sung about this already this morning in our praise and worship time. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, where it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created and in heaven, sorry, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
that he might be before everything. Of course, this is, again, just this whole aspect of, of Jesus Christ revealing to us that very character and the very person of God. That there is none other like him. I don't know about you this morning, but is that how you see Jesus today? That he is the preeminent one? Most importantly, that he is the preeminent one in your life. Well, this is the God we worship. This is our God. Our God. Your God. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ as Saviour. And because of who God is, he alone then is able to require certain things from us. But before we move on to the what about the worshipping heart, we need to consider another aspect that is important to the worshipping heart, and that is the why. Why is it that we worship God? You know, there are two main reasons or two main ways a person is motivated to obey. Two main ways. Through love or through fear. They are essentially the two main ways that a person is motivated to obedience. You know, I would much rather my children, and parents, I'm sure you'll nod your heads with me in agreement, we would much rather our children obey us out of love rather than fear, wouldn't we? Yeah. It's much more pleasing to me when my children actually do what I ask because they want to in order to show that love and respect towards myself and my wife, Coral, as their parents. And that they would do it in that way rather than begrudgingly. Rather than, oh, yeah, okay, if I have to. You know the attitude, don't you? The eyes roll back and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And they do it because, oh, well, I've got to do it and I don't want to lose, you know, I don't want to lose, you know, these privileges that I have. You know, I want to be able to watch TV or uh, go on the internet or, you know, have, uh, be able to go out with my friends or whatever. You know, it can be the same with us in our obedience to God. We can obey God out of fear, thinking that if we don't obey God, then he's going to exact some kind of punishment on us through whether some kind of difficulty or hardship in our lives. Don't we often think like that? Yeah, no? Okay, all right, just me. I must be the odd one out here this morning. <laughs> Thanks, Bree. <laughs> I missed you, Bree. <clears throat> Thing is, when we obey God out of fear and we obey him kind of begrudgingly and that sort of thing, then you know what? It's really not obedience at all. It's really not obedience at all. In fact, it's rebellion. True obedience comes from a willful submission motivated by love. True obedience comes from a willful submission motivated by love. We see that in verse 15 of our passage this morning. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. What it's pointing out there is, you know, Moses is trying to make clear, you know what, God, you as God's people, God has set his affection and his love upon you. He didn't have to. There was no kind of, there was nothing about you that really required God to show that to you. 
There was no special kind of characteristic about you, no kind of special thing or marvellous thing that you'd done, which God sort of, as he sat there on his throne, think, wow, I've really got to show, you know, really got to show my favour on this person. No. God had no reason whatsoever to actually pour out his grace and mercy on the people of Israel or upon you and me, but he did so anyway. And Moses is trying to get across to the people. He said, you know what? This God who is sovereign over all, who rules over all, whose all power and majesty and glory is far greater than anything that you can imagine, the the one who is holy and perfectly holy and righteous, who, who is the creator of all things, he set his love and his affection on you. And in response to that, Moses is trying to say, doesn't that then deserve a response of thankfulness and of love and of of dedication and devotion to him in return? Deuteronomy 7.6 says this. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of of the earth God had set his affection on his on these on his people but not only that he also acted powerfully on their behalf he goes on to say in verses 21 to do 21 to 22 he is your praise he is your god who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen your fathers went down to egypt 70 persons But now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. What Moses is trying to do is he's trying to get the people to remember back to the to the events of the Exodus, where you know God in in his in his power and his might and his and his majesty and his righteousness, he actually brought the plagues upon the uh, the nation of of Egypt. He uh, forced Pharaoh's hand to let the people go. He took them. He he parted the Red Sea that they might walk over on dry land and escape the Egyptian army. He led them into the wilderness he fed them he provided for them in all these different ways he brought them to mount sinai he entered into this covenant relationship with them god had acted so powerfully on their behalf and of course all this was was in response to a promise that god had made to a man called abraham earlier when he promised Abraham, he said, if you leave your family and your country and your, you know, your tribe and all that sort of thing, if you leave that and choose to follow me, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and I will bless you in order that you might be a blessing to others. And, I, and, I, and, and so what we see in the people of Israel, these are indeed the very testimony to God's faithfulness to his promises. They went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and there they were in Egypt over 400 years. God grew them into this large number of people, as numerous as the, the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. And now he was, he'd brought them to this, the, the edge of the promised land, which he'd promised to bring them to sooner or later, into that, that promised land which, where he was going to bring them and live with them in relationship with them. God is saying, and Moses is reminding the people, you know what, this is who God is. He's promised all this. And look, you are the fulfillment of that. And you are standing right on the cusp of inheriting the promised land which God had said he would do, to you, do for you some 400 years earlier. 
God had acted powerfully on their behalf. For us as believers today, we need look no further than Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, which speaks about God acting powerfully on our behalf in Jesus Christ. For it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Romans eight twenty nine to 30 speaks of how God has acted, not only choosing us, but also saving us and rescuing us from sin and death. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is saying here, he called us, he has justified us, and he has glory. He's working out his sanctification and he was going, he is going to one day glorify us in Jesus Christ. That is a foregone conclusion, folks. If you have been set apart by God, called by him to be his child, this is what God has promised for you, that he will keep you faithful, that he will lead you right through to the end and he will lead you into all the promises of glory there in heaven where you will be with him forever and ever and ever. Now, isn't that something to rejoice in and be, and be praising him for? That his faithfulness and his power is able to accomplish that? And Dale's going to be talking a bit more on Romans 8 tonight, but I just love that passage. I love the promises of God in that passage. The assurance and the hope that it gives us. Folks, as I said before, no one, no one is worthy of God's mercy and grace. But for those who admit their need for his forgiveness, who confess their sins... Seek his forgiveness. He he pours out his love on them through Jesus Christ and sets them apart for himself as his treasured possession. Our adoption into God's family then becomes the basis or the motivation then for our entire Christian lives. It is the very foundation or forms the very foundation of our identity and our behaviour. The fact that what God has done for us then really should define who we are. Now, Paul speaks in Ephesians again of, of reminding us, you know, since we've been called as God's children, he says, live a life worthy of that calling you've received. That's our motivation. Well, we're God, we, we are God's children called to live in a certain way, and so that's what we're going to finally end up with, the what of the worshipping heart. Verses 12, verses 12 to 13 and verse 20 this morning. As I said, this passage points out in no uncertain terms what is required of the people of God, of the person of God, of the person whose heart is indeed circumcised. It says, what does the Lord require of you? And it goes on to state several things. It says that we are to fear the Lord your God. We are to walk in his ways. We are to love him. We are to serve him with all our heart and soul. And we are to keep his commandments and his statutes. 
To fear God means to have this, this deep reverence and respect for God, to be in awe of him. In fact, to make him the one in your life whom you least want to offend. I remember uh, not long ago, going back to earlier this year, and, um, and I can say it because mum's not here this morning. No, sorry, it's, it's, it's actually bad about me, not her. It was her birthday back in February. And uh, we'd been saying, oh, we need to ring mum today, but never as a family were we all together at the same time to ring. And so we'd sort of keep putting it off and putting it off until finally, 10.30 that night, Coral's sitting on the couch and she says to me, we haven't rung your mother for her birthday. My heart sank. My heart sank. Because the one whom I loved, the mum whom I loved, I'd forgotten to ring her on her birthday. And wish her a happy birthday. And it did. It, it just caused me a great deal of angst and of, 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 um, of, of hurt in my heart. Is that the same kind of hurt and angst in your heart that you have when you offend God? When you sin against God? Because it should be. And yes, we're not to dwell there. Because we have indeed been forgiven for our sins. But it should indeed cut us to our hearts that we would deeply offend God when we sin against him and when we rebel against him, when we choose to go our own ways. Well, to walk in his ways means to be imitators of God, that our lives are determined by his character and by his word as our guiding principle in life. Is that, for, is that you today? Does that characterise you today, that you walk in his ways, that you love him, that you serve him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Do you keep his commands and his statutes? Is the word of God actually your guiding principle in life? Are you convinced that his ways are right and true and good for your good, that his wisdom is far greater than your wisdom? Like genuine love for God, a true worship of God needs to translate also, not just in this love for God, but in a genuine love for others. We see that in Mark 12, chapter 30 and 31, where Jesus says, you shall, you know, the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. We see it again in 1 John 4, 19 to 21, where it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that's what God is making clear here in this passage in Deuteronomy in verse 18 where it says that because God loves the stranger, the sojourner, the, the alien, because Israel themselves were sojourners, they were aliens in a strange land, God poured out his love on them and he's saying, as I've done for you, then you must do so for others. We love the alien and strange. God calls his people to love the sojourner because he loves the sojourner, the stranger. And as the people of God, we are to be like him. Who are the aliens and strangers for us then? Well, folks, they can be new people at our church on a Sunday morning. 
They can be new people who bring their children along to youth groups on a Sunday night or play groups during the week or kids zone on a Sunday morning or, or attend some other ministry of the church. They are our, and they are our neighbours, neighbours, our, the strangers amongst us. Not that they're strange, it's just that they're unknown to us. Mind you, we do treat them as though they're strange sometimes, don't we? And that turns them off. It turns them away. Not only is it new people at our church, it's new people in our neighbourhoods. New people even in our nation. The refugees and that who come here to our shores. And can I just say just briefly that I get a little bit disturbed by some of the, uh, the political rhetoric and the, uh, the, 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 uh, the talk that's going on at the moment in the public sphere about closing our borders and limiting the freedom of certain groups in our nation. We need to be disturbed about that as believers, as Christians. And yes, it is a complicated matter, people coming to our shores on boats and things like that, and I don't downplay that in any way, shape or form. But if we are going to close our borders to one particular group or if we're going to prevent the freedom of speech from one particular group, then where in, where in, in the end does, does that actually end up? Where does it all end up for us? We need to keep that in mind when we you know, like these things on Facebook and things like that. Because eventually if we start you know, um, stopping these kind of freedoms, we eventually then lay, lay open the way for a lot of other freedoms to be shut down and we ourselves can end up being victims of that too. Okay, that's the political part of the uh, message this morning. And folks, as Christians, we need to stand up for freedom for freedom of religion and freedom of speech as, as Christians, even if we don't agree with it. I think God's word's pretty clear. Love your enemies, God says, doesn't he? Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 10 says, love your neighbour. Who is my neighbour? Luke 10 makes it very, very clear that everyone is our neighbour. We are to love our neighbours. So I just want to conclude this morning by asking you these quick questions. Have you considered lately what God requires of you? As his follower, have you considered lately what God requires of you? Have you reminded yourself lately of the God who demands your worship? That he is indeed the great and mighty and awesome God who is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Who is the one who sits enthroned over all creation who made you and who chose you and who poured out his love and grace and mercy into your life. How is your heart this morning? Is it sensitive and open to the ways of God and the leading of God in your life? Or is it closed? Is it stubborn? Is it hard? Is it cold towards the things of God today? Perhaps today you might need that spiritual reset that we've been talking about. Well, if it is, then it's time for you this morning to come to the cross of Jesus. Because indeed, Jesus truly does change everything and can change you. We're going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to just use um, an excerpt of a prayer that, uh, that was actually given at this particular gathering in the States last, uh, last weekend. Uh, Louis Giglio was the fellow who prayed, and I've sort of taken a bit of his prayer and added bits and pieces to it. So let's pray as we uh, close our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, you see us this morning as your people gathered here in this place before you. 
And we ask that you would allow us not to be too proud to bow down to you. For if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we do not have what it takes. We don't have the answers. We don't have the solutions. But as your people gathered here today, we do know what we do have, and we have God Almighty on our side. So we bow down low and we lift you high today, the great and mighty and awesome God. And we ask that you help us to turn from our foolish ways, our independent and selfish ways, our stubborn ways. Because we know that for too long we've walked in our own sight. We've walked in our own strength and in our own understanding. And that we've turned away from you. That we've neglected your word. We have been hard in our hearts to your ways. We've deafened our ears to your Holy Spirit leading us and we have lifted up every other name in this world more at times than the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And so today, here we are. Humble us. Help us to bow down low. Help us to lift up our hearts, our hands, our voices, our eyes, our hope to you and proclaim that you are indeed the God who is great, the only true God. Father, you are indeed full of love, full of grace, full of mercy and full of truth. You indeed love us as you love everyone. And, and, and Jesus, we want to thank you that you stepped off that throne of glory and were obedient to the Father, that you humbled yourself so that God's purposes and will could be done and would be done, that God's kingdom would come and that grace and mercy would fall on every single one of us today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that when they nailed you to the cross, it didn't result in death and defeat, but instead in life and in victory and in hope for every person who puts their faith and trust in you. And so today we exalt you as the giver of life, the one who defeated death, the one who cancelled our guilt, the one who erased our shame, the one who loosed our chains, the one who set us free and breathed back into us the breath of everlasting life. We praise you today that we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, that we no longer need fear your judgment and condemnation, but that in Jesus Christ we have been made new. That is the good news of your gospel and we praise you, Jesus, for that. Because that is our good news and the good news of all who admit and confess their sin. Jesus, you are indeed glorious. Would you be glorified in us, enabling each of us to be ready and willing to follow you with boldness and courage in whatever way you lead us. For we pray this in and through your mighty and glorious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.